you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Dee 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 Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike. How you doing this morning? You found the Down East Mike Podcast coming to you live from Down East Maine, the land of we always try to describe it in these kind of whimsical terms. Land of, let's see, uh, Southwest-wearing fishermen, round women, uh, ruddy-faced children playing in the snow. Um, we really can't describe Maine at this time. You know, Maine this time of year is just like, it's not quite a postcard because for most of the winter, there's been no snow whatsoever on the ground. So it's not postcard picture perfect Maine, but it's getting better. I was turning on the computer this morning, and as I got into it, it this little window popped up and said, do you want to make changes to this device? And I'm thinking... How nice our lives would be, and how simple, if that's all we had was like like a little pop-up that said, do you want to make changes to your life today? And of course, you'd always say, not really, unless I know the consequences. You have to be careful about these things. That's my opening monologue. Not Not too great, but here we are anyway. This is Down East Mike, episode number 74, News and Commentary. For January 21st, 2023, it is Saturday. Our motto and disclaimer, just to keep you up to speed with us, is some of this is whimsy and some of it's true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. And also, we like to remind everybody that Downey's Mike contains no mean words, just wholesome goodness from Down East Maine. It's a historical literary auditory candy store. Today's episode, we have a Civil War survivor dying in 1929, a $10,000 bathroom in Bar Harvard, 1929 on this day, electric train trouble in Auburn in 1897, and we will visit the Maine insect of the instant today. All that, plus birthdays, and a word of the day, sort of. Let's get right to the headlines if you're just uh, rolling out of bed and you don't want to go to the internet or have the news delivered to you through TV. Let's see. Um, New Zealand farmers sour on Arden's labor, complicating new PM's path. The lady in New Zealand gave her notice. She said she was tired and burnt out. U.S. officials advise Ukraine to wait on offensive. They like having their war there, I think. Google, Amazon, and Microsoft layoffs will result in a bloodbath of 40,000 jobs lost. Trump ordered to pay nearly $1 million for a frivolous lawsuit, and he drops another suit soon after. He has lawsuits everywhere. Elon Musk's father reveals incredible security measures. They're worried about kidnapping there, that family. He's lost so much money, I would think that you'd lose interest in wanting to kidnap him. He's kind of broke almost. Um, Anything else in the world news here? Nothing really dramatic. Illegal border crossings. They searched at the highest numbers. Let's look at the main headlines. Uh, Gun sales in Maine declined in 2022, but remain historically high. 
Well, that's a headline. Forecasters are tracking another main storm. And we see the gun sales headline again. Canadian firm tries a second proposal for mining in northern Maine. They want those rare earth elements and they want to get them out of the ground as quickly as possible. Another headline here. Uh, Maine schools limit snow days no matter the weather. Well, they went from lockdown and full-time remote to restricting their snow days. And if there's anything else locally here... We have another storm on the way. Maine bans TikTok for state workers. What are they going to do all day? That's our main headlines. Anyway, let's go right to our word of the day. Not really a word, but it's more of a name. Talifer, T-A-I-L-L-E-F-E-R. And that means cutter of iron. And Talifer was a Norman minstrel, and he asked to be allowed to strike the first stroke in 1066. He rode before the Norman army, singing the song of Roland and tossing his sword in the air and catching it. He then rushed on the English. He killed three men, and then he was slain. Euland has a ballad on the subject called Talifer. And from the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, not that this is random or anything, uh, Talifer, the surname of a bard and a warrior of the 11th century whose exact name and place of birth are unknown. He accompanied the Norman army to England in 1066. He obtained permission from William to strike the first blow at the Battle of Hastings. He fought with spirit and determination and was killed in the battle. Mention of Talifer is made by Guido the Bishop of Amiens, in his Carmen de Bello Hastingensi. And that was in 1931, uh, nine, volume 931. This is just great information for you. But I like that. He tossed his sword in the air and he caught it. He rushed on the English. He killed three men and then he died. But anyway, he made history. How about birthdays today? Happy birthday today to Fenwick of South Bristol. He turns 90. We were just visiting Fenwick the other day on the drive home. We both remarked on how hale and hearty Fenwick seemed. Happy birthday, Fenwick. Happy birthday to Kenny in Winslow. If you don't know Kenny, you'd be surprised to learn that he spent many years overseas building bridges in remote parts of the world with a particular knack for swinging suspension bridges. And he turns 59 today. He's not slowing down too much. We found an ad, switching gears here. We found an ad from 1972. It's from General Electric. And it's a picture of a street. And they can't see any telephone wires. It says, can you find the electric wires in this picture? And it says, that really isn't a fair question. You'd need x-ray vision to see the electric wires in Columbia, Maryland. Columbia is a new city planned in detail before a shovel full of earth was ever moved. And one of the first things planners settled on was underground electricity. GE helped the Baltimore Gas and Electric Company do it. Until recently, underground electricity was economical only for areas of larger cities. This is just, just getting so interesting. But that's changed greatly, and it's estimated by 1975, 70% of all dis distribution wires to new construction will be underground. 
Now, if you look around today, we're well past 1975. Do you see a lot of uh, lines still up on, on poles? I'd say yes. Most of them still seem to be. So it must have been kind of a tough goal to, to actually accomplish. General Electric is also looking on ways to spruce up the looks of overhead power distribution systems and on nuclear plants to help cut down on air pollution. Those nuclear plants, so much air pollution. And there's a lot to be done for cities old and new GE is helping. Isn't that a great story? The next story we found from this day, January 21st, 1972, is a picture of a, outside a movie theater of a big line of people. Looks like they're stringing out along the, around the block. And the year in pictures in the movie that they're waiting to get in to see is The Godfather, 1972. And they, the little motto, the line here is, they made us a movie we couldn't refuse. So what's striking about it is that there's a line out around, around the block to see a movie. And do we see that today? Are there lineups for movie? I think they just closed the theater in Brunswick. Uh, and... Uh, you really have to wonder, you know, things have changed so much that people used to line up to go to see movies and no longer. Okay, tell me if I'm going too fast here for you because it is Saturday morning. Our next story about uh, about energy uh, shortages. It's an, Again, it's an advertisement in Life magazine. This day, 1972, is from the Oil Companies of America. The surest way to increase... Uh, domestic supplies of oil and natural gas. These two fuels furnish 77% of our energy. How can America head off energy shortages? Today, America's demand for oil and natural gas is much greater than domestic production. To avoid the energy shortages you've been reading so much about, we're dependent more and more on imports of foreign oil. We need imports but we should not become overly dependent on them. Every American should know the facts about the energy supplies on which his way of life depends. And then they go on, list all the ways we use energy, as if we didn't know. Planes, trains, television networks. Abundant and low-cost supplies of energy have given Americans one of the highest standards of living in the world. Oil and natural gas furnish 77% of our injury energy, sorry, including nearly 40% of our electricity. Yet today, with energy demand expected to almost double within the next 15 years, production from known domestic reserves has reached a peak. So it was peak oil in 1972. Uh, And they go on and on about it. Uh, Energy for America is not just an oil problem, not a gas problem, not a coal problem coal problem. It's all these and more interlocking into a single problem that demands solution because it affects every citizen. You can help solve it right to, and then they list an address they want you to write to. In 1971, they imported one-fourth of the oil that was used, and they think that natural gas would go up as well. And We've been using more and finding less. Just thought that was quite interesting in 1972, and it's kind of beating that same same drum today, uh, the new shortage is time. We won't run out of energy in the near future, but we're running out of time. They just want to keep you stressed out, don't they? Okay, let's go back to 1929, January 21st. 
And we have a story here about James McCarter, Carter, who was thought to be the oldest survivor of the Civil War. This is 1929. And he was undisputably the oldest resident of Knox County, Maine. And he had died at the age of 100 years, five months, and a single day at Broadview Farm in Cushing. I wonder if that farm's still there. Each generation of the family has built a fine house on the beautiful site where Mr. McCarter's long life was spent. His father was a farmer, and it was written in the books that he should till the same acres, but stately ships passed by the mouth of the Georges. And they beckoned so strongly to him that he decided to go to sea. So McCarter goes to sea. Uh, he learned the riggers trade in Thomaston, and he was engaged on the schooner Richard Robinson, 1851. Winter was coming swiftly, and the men worked feverishly to get the craft to Seabird before the river froze. The boy became so greatly interested that he decided to make a southern voyage, and the sea claimed his attention from then until a civil war broke out. He enlisted in Company G of the 21st Maine at Augusta. His duties took him to Port Hudson, Louisiana, where he figured in all but one of the engagements. One night, McCarter uh, was killed in his sleep, or at least his comrades thought he was, and he was left for dead on the field of battle. What had happened was he was struck by a piece of shell and knocked unconscious. When he came to his senses, he picked himself up and ran until he overtook his comrades. That night when he unrolled his blanket, the piece of shell dropped out. It had torn its way through several thicknesses of blanket, and it weighed nearly a pound. I don't think he actually weighed it. On another occasion, he was at the extreme end of a skirmish, and when the skirmishers were called in, he was listed as missing. He kept on going until he bumped into the enemy's pickets. The rebel was as much frightened as he was, and both followed advice they had both heard. When in the presence of the enemy, strike, strike, for your home and then for your fireside. He found his way safely into camp before morning. It's a polite way of saying he ran away. On his way home south, he was on a ship which rounded Cape Hatteras in a severe storm, and 80 horses were killed between decks. Three survivors of that voyage now living are Albion Allen, who's 95. He lives in Hope, Maine. William Maxey, 88, of Rockland, and Fernando Philbrick, 88, of Rockland. These are some old timers back in 1929. Years ago, Mr. McCarter used to raise potatoes and sold them for 15 cents a bushel, and he was a vessel rigger for 75 cents a day, a dangerous and strenuous vocation. Once, when he was shipwrecked on the Isle of Hope, and friendly Indians, Indians helped him to reach Castine. All right, there was a snowshoe derby in full swing on this day, 1929. The Montreal to Lewiston Snowshoe Derby, that sounds just so labor-intensive, it was scheduled to get underway from Montreal at 9 a.m. Monday. The start of the derby was from Champ de Mars. Monday's lap was from Montreal to St. Jean, a distance of 30 miles, and in the evening, a boxing match is to be held at the Capitol Theater, and the runners will be introduced to those present. So let's snowshoe 30 miles and knock each other out. That's how they did things in 1929. We go back to 1897 on this day. There were 25 Masons employed in the construction of the new 
Grand Trunk Elevator at Portland. They went on strike because they wanted a raise of 25 cents a day. Their demands were refused and they attacked the boss Mason. Take that. A fight took place in which several Masons were injured. One of the strikers was arrested and all the others were discharged in their places filled by others. The strikers tried to prevent these men from working and another fight took place. Five more men were arrested, charged with rioting. Not much fun way to spend your day. Okay, Editor Pulitzer, and this is right where the Pulitzer Prize came from, Editor Pulitzer's Bar Harbor Splendor is bedimmed by the report from San Francisco that Mrs. Thomas Watson, daughter of Klaus Spreckels, is to have a seven by eight foot bathroom built which will cost $10,000. Mr. Pulitzer will have to stud his bath brush with diamonds. Isn't that fun? Uh, some of the lists here, Machias wants a normal school, Denny'sville is a fine location in Central for General Hospital. Lubeck is desirous of an industrial school for girls and Millbridge wants an armory building. This is 1897. Eastport and Callis need a connecting trolley road. So does Jonesport uh, need an electric rail to connect with Columbia Falls. These are several other projects that need special aid by the state. So they're looking to raise taxes for that little venture. Okay, some one-line stories. There's a lively demand for sterilizers in the two cities. I don't know if they want an autoclave or what. There, a polo match at City Hall this evening. Lewiston versus Portland. I don't know what kind of polo that was, but something that bears investigating. City, uh, city electrician Whitney is straightening out the wires. They had a jolly good time at the Auburn Armory Hall Wednesday evening. Doesn't say what they did. Oh, I, maybe it does. The Auburn firemen and their friends will dance in the Auburn Hall this evening. So Wednesday night they had a jolly time and then tonight it's going to be the Auburn firemen and their friends. The Pilgrim Fathers of Pine Tree Colony will banquet on Friday night. Sad that we missed that. This week the Auburn and Lewiston Shoe Factories shipped 4,610 cases of shoes. The leather receipts were 100,024 pounds. Hmm. Let's see, everybody stops to look at the big thermometer put out by the Lewiston Evening Journal at the main entrance to the Elm House in Auburn. Big attraction. The switch at the Lewiston end of the North Bridge bothers the electric carmen. It is almost impossible to get an Auburn inbound car over the switch without trouble. They say the present tonsorial artist at the county jail in Auburn is the best they ever had at the institution. His name is Murphy, and he is an artist with a razor and shears. Now you know all about the tonsor, right? That little haircut that the monks get to make them look like they're wearing the crown of thorns like Jesus. Perhaps you haven't thought of it, but a high wind like that of Tuesday interferes with the trolley. It was especially severe on North Bridge. One conductor says he had to get off and fix the trolley four times while making one trip across the bridge. And let's see what else we have for little stories here. The Rockland schooner Nahum Chapin goes down 
near Quogue, Long Island. Uh, nine men drowned while hundreds were looking on trying to help. Three ropes were thrown, struck the vessel, but none could be secured. It's a real sad story. Three-masted schooner out of Rockland, Maine. It was going from Baltimore for Boston. And I can't quite read what it had on board. It says meal, maybe. It was lost within 300 yards of the shore, Long Island, Thursday morning. The crew of nine per perished within sight of hundreds of persons who could do nothing to help them. It stranded about 4 o'clock Thursday morning for three hours, pounded up gradually higher on the hard sandy beach. And then with a crash, she went to pieces. And one by one, the nine sailors on board, who could be plainly seen clinging to the rigging, were engulfed with the wreckage and died within hailing distance of the lifesavers on shore. A stiff northeast gale was blowing when the vessel stranded, and the surf was unusually high. The waves beat in upon the beach with great fury. The storm said to be the worst in that part of Long Island seen in years. Then it goes on to describe they had the uh, rope gun. The lifesaver sent a rope from a mortar to the schooner. It struck the vessel and hung for a second across her yards, but slipped away and fell into the sea. Then another rope was fired. It landed in the rigging, and the sailors managed to secure it, but could not make it fast to the vessel. And this rope was lost, and a third one was sent a short time later. They could catch it, but not secure it. The mass of the vessel were swinging to and fro, striking the surf at almost every dip. And it goes on about that. The whole village had turned out to see the wreck, but were helpless to aid the seamen. It sounds like they really tried. Only the mass and the jib booms uh, end, to which three other men were clinging, could be seen. With every wave, these men on the jib boom were buried in the sea. At last, one huge wave swept one of the sailors off the boom. He was never seen again. The other two met a similar fate. In a few moments, great quantities of the wreckage began to come ashore. At the last moment, it was seen that two of these who were clinging to the rigging of the foremast were not men as supposed, but that one was a child and the other uh, a woman. Very sad story. Uh, captain's family at home, the woman and child seen to go down with the chap chapin, the ship, uh, were not Mrs. Airy and baby. Captain Airy, who with his entire crew lost his life in the wreck of the schooner Nahum Chapin in Long Island Sound this morning leaves a widow and four children residing in Tuff Street of the city. It's a Malden, Mass. All are present at home, so the woman and child who are seen clinging to the rigging were not his uh, children and wife. What a sad story. He was 36 years old, a native of Owl's Head, Maine. He'd been at sea since he was 18. Uh, another little one-liner here. Two drunks in the Lewiston Municipal Court on Thursday morning. Torpedo boat number six had her first trial Wednesday at Newport, Rhode Island under three boilers. She made several runs over a government course and developed a speed of 26.85 knots. The ease with which the vessel moves through the water and the small disturbance of water while at this terrific speed were remarked by all who saw the trial. So 26 knots is extremely fast for a large vessel, and this was in 1897, and haven't made a lot of improvements there today on speed, I don't think. Let's look at Maine's insect of the instant. This is the snow flea, a primitive insect, the snow flea. Hypogastria 
Nivacola. It's a very small, about one-tenth inch long and dark blue-gray. They have a somewhat plump body and have small compound eyes comprised of only eight facets in each. Snow fleas are wingless but can jump. And how do they jump? A type of springtail snow fleas can jump by using a forked appendage held under their abdomen called a furcula. Facing forward, the furcula is held in place by a clasp-like structure known as a retin uh, reticulum. When the furcula is released, it propels the snow flea up and forward. It can jump up to several inches. So they really don't bite. It's just that they jump. That's where they get their kind of they get their flea name from. Uh, although they're very abundant, they go unnoticed during the summer. They're still around. They have a higher tolerance for cold temperatures compared to typical insects. As the snow starts to melt in late winter, they're able to make, move up through breaks in the snow. And you can find them on top of the snow in potentially large numbers, at times literally turning the snow black. Watch for snow fleas, especially around the base of trees. And from the Maine State Government website, uh, they talk a little bit more about springtails are minute wingless insects of the order columbola that live in a variety of moist habitats. Because of their small size and microhabitat, they're seldom observed. They're generally considered harmless, but at times large numbers may invade greenhouses, swimming pools, or houses to become a nuisance. And they have some pictures here. They're about one sixteenth of an inch long and vary in color from nearly transparent to white to dark gray to black. They feed on algae, fun, fungi, and decaying vegetable matter. Well, I think that's enough about the snow fleas, but look for those out there on a sunny day coming up through the snow banks. Okay, let's look at the weather forecast for today. We're looking at sunny skies with a high about 30 degrees, north wind around 5 miles per hour. For tonight, mostly clear with a low around 11, calm wind again. And then for Sunday, increasing clouds with a high near 34, a little bit more wind. And then Sunday night, it starts snowing again, mainly after 8 p.m., 3 to 7 inches Sunday night. And then uh, rain and snow likely throughout the day on Monday. In other words, another storm coming our way. Well, that is the Down East Mike podcast for today. Until next time, this is Down East Mike wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you.
they've got a death pack. And now they're living the Bangor Blues. The Bangor Blues. The Bangor Blues. Nothing left to lose.